the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Money can't buy you everything. It especially can't save you from meeting a tragic end. On February 25th, 1942, a man was born who would create quite the life for himself. A man whose money-making skills may or may not have ended up costing him his life. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Bernard Charles Sherman, or Barry as everyone liked to call him, was born on February 25th, 1942, to a Jewish family living in Toronto, Canada. Raised by a father who was a business partner for the Zipper Company until he was 10 years old, his mother became an occupational therapist after her husband's fatal heart attack. An intelligent young man, Barry went on to win a national physics contest while attending the Forest Hill Collegiate Institute, graduated with top marks, and in the summer of 1958, signed up for a Canadian Army organized student militia, but later left when he found that he did not care much for having to submit to authorities. Moving on, he entered the University of Toronto's engineering science program, and at the age of just 16, was one of the youngest students to ever join. When asked about it, Barry simply said that he chose the program because it was known as the university's hardest. During the summers, seemingly not able to take a moment off to be a, quote, normal kid, Barry often worked at his uncle's company, Empire Laboratories, then Canada's largest wholly owned pharmaceutical company, and primarily acted as a driver to pick up urine samples for pregnancy tests. And when his uncle had to travel, he often oversaw the daily operations. Graduating with the highest honors in 1964, 
even receiving the university's Governor General's Award for his thesis, Barry went on to join the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where in 1967, he received his PhD in astrophysics. Shortly after finishing school, Barry Sherman purchased Empire Laboratories after the owner, Louis Lloyd Winter, and his wife Beverly, his uncle and aunt, both died just 17 days apart from one another. The company at the time was the first to secure the compulsory rights to manufacture Valium in Canada and one of the country's largest manufacturers of Pfizer's Vibramycin, Upjohn Company's Oranace, and the sweetener Saccharin. Allowing him to purchase a majority stake in the company on the condition that the couple's four orphan children would be allowed to work there when they reached the age of 21 and were given an option to buy a 5% stake with 15-year royalties for four of the patented products, Barry walked away with an incredibly successful company. All of those agreements, however, would be voided if he sold Empire to another buyer which is exactly what happened in 1969 when he worked out a deal to swap shares with Empire's largest customer and in 1970 went ahead and invested in the American firm, Bar Laboratories. Becoming the largest shareholder and president of Bar, Empire in January of 1972 was sold to yet another company and the arrangement with the Winter Estate was completely voided. Barry then went on to start another company, Apotex, with a former Empire personnel, became involved in nutraceutical manufacturing, joined in on other businesses, and founded the National Institute of Nutrition and later sold it to continue at his company that, by 2016, had over 10,000 employees, made about $1.5 billion annually, and was one of Canada's largest drug manufacturers. All of this was above board and incredibly successful. The same, however, could not be said for some of the other non-pharmaceutical businesses that Barry personally invested in, many of which were described as dubious and turned out to be frauds, like the yacht chartering company that was nothing more than a shell corporation that never actually bought or owned any yachts, or the nutritional supplement marketed by American fraudster Kevin Trudeau that, when investigated, resulted in Kevin's imprisonment and forced Barry to sell half of his stake in the Apotex Foundation. According to those who knew Barry, he never saw any of these frauds for what they were. He was simply too generous, too trusting, and never did his due diligence. This was proven again when, for a total of 15 years, Barry partnered with a fruit juice maker named Frank D'Angelo, who wanted to branch out and start another business. The pair produced the Cheetah Power Surge Energy Drink and started Steelback Brewery, both of which failed when Frank went bankrupt in 2007 and Barry lost about $1 million. But despite this, he continued to invest in the man, this time in his filmmaking career, until Frank was arrested for sexual assault and obstruction of justice. The charges were later dropped, and from 2009 to 2013, Barry financed a total of eight Frank D'Angelo films. While this was happening, Barry began working with another man who would later be convicted of fraud, Sean Rutenberg, who persuaded him to invest in an online trivia game. Barry Sherman later had to file lawsuits against the man, alleging that the money never went into the company, but instead straight into Sean's pockets. 
Despite all that he lost over the years, his net worth was an estimated $3.2 billion by the end of his life. And according to Forbes, he was the 12th wealthiest man in Canada. While it was clear that Barry was succeeding in his professional life, despite his trusting manner, he also had quite a lot of personal success, beginning when he married a fellow U of T graduate named Honey Reich in 1971. And together, the couple welcomed a son, Jonathan, and three daughters, Lauren, Alexandra, and Kaylin. A proud Jewish woman, Honey and Bernard donated a record $50 million to the United Jewish Appeal, as well as other Jewish charities, and provided the funds to build a major addition to the Baycrest Health Sciences Geriatric Center. They were major donors to the United Way, and the Apotex Foundation donated over $50 million worth of medication to disaster zones over the years. Bernard himself was also known to give out money to his employees who were in need of help. Despite what seemed like a valiant lifestyle, things were not exactly as they seemed. While some thought that he and Honey were true and genuinely good people, Barry himself was described by some as one of the worst individuals to ever walk the planet. According to a law professor at the University of Ottawa, Barry Sherman was a, quote, deplorable human being when it came to his business practices and claimed that he gouged many Canadians with his high drug prices as well as crossed some ethical lines when it came to intellectual property rights. Allegedly battling as many as 100 cases in court to challenge patents in order to create Apotex generic prescriptions, the company as a whole sued government agencies in response to regulatory decisions. Filing an estimated 1,200 cases against the government and federal court, and costing Canadian taxpayers millions of dollars in legal fees. Barry, even allegedly, once told his employees that Apotex was primarily a legal company that sold medication on the side. And it wasn't just his business that found its way into the courtroom. In 2011, his own cousins, the Winter Children, sued him for never paying them the royalties and equity in Apotex, which they claimed he purchased using the money that he earned from the sale of their father's company. Seeking 20% interest in Apotex, or $1 billion in damages, Barry responded by withdrawing millions of dollars in financial assistance to his cousins that they claimed he offered as a way to make them financially dependent on him and to keep them from, quote, learning about their rights to the business. In September of 2017, the judge ruled against the Winters, and they expressed their wish to appeal the ruling. However, they never got the chance. The year 2017 was the same year that the Shermans decided to sell their longtime home in North York in favor of moving closer to Toronto. Honey allegedly initiated the move, and back in 2016, purchased a lot where the plan was to demolish the existing home and build a new 16,000-square-foot one in its place. With plans for a central swimming pool, a 41-foot skylight, living quarters for their staff, a car stacker in the garage, and a depth that was more than twice what was allowed by the city's zoning, the opulent house was approved in June of 2017, and the North York home was placed on the market for almost $7 million. 
Between the lawsuit with the Winters children, the sale of their home, and the plans to build, Barry and Honey Sherman became incredibly busy. However, when Honey did not attend the December 12th board meeting for the Baycrest Center Foundation without notification beforehand, the other members were concerned and reached out to her by email. She simply responded that she was, quote, dealing with some stuff, but the next day, the Shermans met at the Apotex headquarters and went over some designs for the home in Barry's office. Honey was, at the time, planning to leave on a vacation to Miami in a few days, and Barry was supposed to join her about a week later. However, this was the last time anyone ever saw the Sherman couple alive ever again. Returning home that night, Barry sent out a routine email to his staff, but failed to make any calls for the rest of the evening. Odd for the businessman, when he didn't show up the next day, the people at work knew something strange was going on. That was confirmed when, on December 15th, neither he nor Honey were home to let in the cleaning staff. Using the key that had been in the recently installed lockbox, they began work around the home when a few of the real estate agents arrived to show an interested buyer around the property. After showing them the main story, the agents went downstairs to the lap pool and there found both Barry and Honey Sherman's bodies next to the water. Around both their necks were leather belts that were then tethered to the metal railing that sat about a meter higher than the pool. Barry was seated, legs crossed, on the pool deck while Honey was lying on her side with a bruise on her face. Both of their coats were pulled down over their shoulders, thus restraining their arms, and they were found facing away from the water, fully clothed. According to a later report by the Toronto Star, Honey's phone was found in a bathroom that, according to her friends, she never really used, suggesting that she might have gone in there as an attempt to call for help but was overpowered by the attacker. Barry's gloves, as well as paperwork relating to the home inspection, were found lying on the floor just outside the garage, and the basement door was left unlocked. Those who knew the couple said that the door was often left as such, which led to suspicion that whoever killed the pair likely knew them and their habits. Treating their deaths as suspicious, the Toronto Police Service Homicide Squad took the lead and began searching the home for any signs of forced entry. Finding none, police later told the Toronto Star that they were, quote, probing the possibility that they were a murder-suicide. Determining, with her bruising, that Honey was a target and Barry was not, friends told officers the home had nine entrances in total and that the couple would likely have let someone in, stranger or not, if they asked for help, no matter what time of day it was. The Sherman children immediately took issue with the murder-suicide theory and publicly chastised the police for coming up with it to begin with. They also contacted a Toronto lawyer, Brian Greenspan, and retained a private investigator to look into the case. Tom Klett, a retired Toronto police detective, was hired, as was Dr. David Chiasson, the retired chief forensic pathologist for Ontario. When he performed a second autopsy, he determined that Barry and Honey's cause of death was absolutely homicide. About a month later, in January of 2018, 
the Toronto Star published an exclusive report based on anonymous sources that claimed the pair were strangled to death with belts after their hands were bound. However, at the time, the family-hired investigators had yet to gain access to the Sherman residence. Then, finally, on January 26th, the Toronto police spoke with the media and stated their belief that the couple were the victims of a targeted attack. But at this point, they didn't discuss any potential suspects or persons of interest. Though it seemed like everyone was finally on the same page, the investigation hit a roadblock when they encountered some resistance at Apotex's headquarters. According to the police spokesperson, quote, legal complexities in some executions have been challenging given the litigious nature of Barry Sherman's businesses. In particular, the search and seizure of electronics in Barry Sherman's workspace at Apotex. Pressing on, in September of 2018, they obtained seven search warrants to add to the 21 that they had already had. And in late October of that same year, the Sherman's lawyer announced the family was ready to give $10 million to anyone who could provide any leads in the case that led to an arrest. While the lawyer complained about the investigation, claiming they had failed to collect important pieces of evidence, police chief Mark Saunders told the media that a forensic pathologist and 50 officers were working on the case, 200 witnesses had been interviewed, over 2,000 hours of video surveillance from neighboring homes had been collected, and a total of 37 warrants had been obtained. Those following the case wondered if one of Barry's many business associates, some of whom had criminal records, were to blame, or if some rival hired a hitman to take out the couple. Perhaps even one of the angered Winter children, or even his own son, who just two weeks before the murder was asked by his father to repay him tens of millions of dollars that Jonathan had borrowed for his storage business. It seemed that there were a number of people who might have wanted Barry Sherman dead, but none panned out in any meaningful way. At least, not enough to earn an arrest. During the course of the investigation, they also learned that, at the time of his death, Barry, through one of the many companies he controlled, had made large donations to several foundations he set up in either his name or Apotex's name. Under Canadian law, this entitled him to an equivalent tax credit and the foundations were then allowed to loan him back the money, which they did to a total of about $6 million. Which meant that, according to a private charity watchdog group, he was, quote, using his foundations as a piggy bank. Though this did lead to some changes in the laws, it did little to help further the case. In April of 2019, the Toronto police announced that they had a, quote, working theory on what happened to the Shermans that night. And by the end of the year, the private investigator that worked with the family closed their investigation. The following month, a reporter from the Star published a book on the case with a revised timeline that suggested the pair were actually murdered on the night of December 13th, within hours of returning home, and not the 15th as previously decided. By November of 2020, the police claimed they identified a person of interest. And on December 14th, 2021, they released security footage of a suspect dressed in dark clothing and seen walking down the sidewalk in the Sherman's neighborhood. 
Then in January of 2022, court documents were released and statements from Honey's sister, Mary, were revealed in which she suggested that the murders were committed to make a statement against Jewish individuals. The Shermans were strong supporters of Israel, and Honey was very vocal about being Jewish. Mary said, quote, There were a lot of people of a certain ethnicity going through the house at a certain time, and Honey would use phrases that were not politically correct. She also claimed that, just six months before her murder, her sister attended a lecture, quote, about stopping money from getting into Muslim fundamentalists' hands, and believed that maybe it was these beliefs that made them targets. Whether or not this theory panned out is unknown, but in April of 2022, the police said the case was, quote, unfortunately old, and that, though still in the investigation phase, no charges had been filed, which remains the case as of the writing of this story. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 26th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.